Welcome to Teaching These Days. I'm Zach Kroll. And I'm Rachel Greenspan. Now, before we get started, we want to let you know that Jonathan, unfortunately, will not be able to continue making the pod with us. Due to his super hectic schedule, because New York City is still in school, and he's still in the middle of getting his doctorate, um, he's not going to be able to continue making the pod. Either way, we are so happy that he helped us create this idea and begin this journey with us. We hope that we can have him on the pod again in the future. But with Jonathan gone, we decided to reformat the podcast a little bit. Instead of just getting our take on different topics, we've decided to allow our guests to drive the conversation. And going forward, each podcast, we plan on having at least one, hopefully two guests to discuss what we consider to be our topic of the pod. What's the reason for this? We aren't the experts on all the areas related to education, and we don't want people to think that we are. There are so many educators out there who can truly provide insight into some of the more fascinating areas of education. Now, with that being said, we still plan to do the um, Ed Ed News uh, segment, as well as our funny anecdotes from the last week. So later on the pod, you'll hear our two interviews, both are related to music education. The first interview is with Tyler Ehrlich from right here in Atlanta. And then we go all the way out to California and interview Will Alvarado. But before that, we want to try to share some positive stories that we found during a tumultuous week that it has been. And before that, we want to discuss some new stories that really struck us this week in the segment we call What's New in Ed News. All right, so what's new in Ed News? School is coming to a close for many, and it's out for some. So what's next for families? Many rely on... Uh, the school community for support. And obviously COVID is um, not over. We're still living in this um, pandemic. And we were able to find that families in Pittsburgh uh, public school system, that the students are able to get SNAP benefits for lunch, um, that the lunches that they missed, these SNAP benefits are coming through due to the virus uh, and the pandemic. So the benefits are around $370 per kiddo regardless of whether the family already gets supplemental nutrition um, assistance program or SNAP benefits. And the super superintendent, uh, we found, uh, said in a news release that the school district already gave out 120,000 meals. Um, it's pretty amazing how the community has come together to support these students and uh, has continued supporting the students even after their school year has come to a close. Um, Zach, what, is, what are your thoughts on uh, and what have you seen uh, in regards to supporting students and families uh, as the school year is coming to a close? Yeah, you know, I think it's probably happening everywhere. I, when we came across this article and we saw this, we we're just like, okay, this is exactly what we want to kind of share. Uh, this is a wonderful news headline right here. Obviously, it, besides, you know, making the district look good, it, it shows the district is being incredibly responsible and, you know, they're doing what they can. They had already allotted, you know, the $5, I think it's $5.70 um, per day for students to receive like breakfast and lunch benefits. And because they'd already kind of budgeted for that and they weren't really able to give out those benefits in the way of food going forward for the last couple of months, I think they made a really, really um, great decision uh, and a very responsible decision 
to go ahead and, and give out that money to the families that need it. So families that already receive SNAP benefits will get this money directly sent to their EBT cards that they can just continue to use. And, you know, families that don't, don't feel like they need it, um, don't have to spend it. And that money will just, I guess, stay in the Pittsburgh public school accounts um, to probably help them for the future. But I think it's wonderful that, um, you know, Pittsburgh is stepping up and the superintendent and school board and all that have decided, you know, to continue helping these families that are, that are clearly in need. Um, because as we talked about a few weeks ago, like things are tough, you know, and unfortunately things haven't really eased up in the last, uh, the week or so. And with that, you know, we want to make sure that we address uh, the protests that have occurred all over the country uh, these last few nights. You know, it started earlier this week in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with the killing of George Floyd, but it is spread, you know, all over the country. Um, and we don't want to get too, too deep into this right now, um, aside from saying that, you know, the death of George Floyd is an absolute tragedy and it's not a one-off occurrence, right? This is a deeper issue related to, you know, systemic racism in our country, in America. And we as educators and as, as people need to be a part um, of addressing that. So we need to figure out a way to kind of help address that issue and move forward in a way that can, you know, help eliminate some of the systemic racism. So maybe in the future, um, hopefully we can try and address this from like an education standpoint and kind of talk about how these issues relate to education. But for right now, um, I want to share something positive, actually. And, and I saw this uh, yesterday, which was Saturday morning. Um, there was a lot, a lot of damage done in downtown Atlanta on Friday night. Um, there were peaceful protests throughout the day. And then unfortunately, at night, it, it got um, a little violent. But Saturday morning, um, I decided to go for a walk to downtown. I went to um, Centennial Park, the CNN Center, where, you know, like the CNN headquarters is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to walk around and kind of see this for myself. And, you know, at first I was just like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the amount of damage that's there. It was terrible. It was really sad. However, one thing that I did get to see that was amazing was there were hundreds of people out there um, in the morning and into the early afternoon. And they were cleaning up the broken glass and they were helping board up windows because some of these windows had been absolutely shattered and destroyed. Um, and they were putting up barriers and helping protect these businesses in case something happened again. And it was really encouraging, really heartening to see, you know, people from all different backgrounds who probably live in all different parts of Atlanta come and help clean up our downtown and help clean up our city. Yeah, that's a, a, a positive in such a, a tough, challenging, uncertain time. Uh, I definitely would like to have a a podcast in the future about culturally responsive practices and teaching and what we can do as educators when it comes to addressing racism and and what does it look like to have these uncomfortable conversations with our students in order to uh, create social change and um, I actually read something online earlier today about um, when is it when is it appropriate to have these conversations and so I think that would be great to get some people on here uh, to talk about some experts in the area of of culturally responsive practices and talking about um, talking about this idea of racism and um, what that looks like in our education system and how to have these conversations with kids and how to have 
these conversations with the younger ones as well as the older ones. Uh, because if we don't talk about it, nothing's going to change. And it starts with those conversations, uh, I believe. And then we can then we can start making some bigger changes within our society. So unfortunately, until those things start to happen, um, we're going to have to hang on hang on for this difficult time where we have to, where we are protesting and uh, hopefully the riots will slow down and people will be able to be peaceful during this time and people can be safe. But thanks yeah, for sharing no. that positive story of uh, everybody coming together to clean up the city. Um, there's definitely a lot of damage throughout the United States and some of these major cities, especially in Chicago as well. So I hope people stay safe and, um, we're able to come together and peacefully protest. I completely agree. I, I hope that, uh, you know, the peaceful protests continue because like you said, we have to do something because mm -hmm. if we don't do anything, nothing will change. But uh, you know, what you said about these are difficult conversations and sometimes they can be really uncomfortable. And a lot of the time we don't want to have them yeah. because we're not having these conversations. You know, it leads to these issues not getting addressed mm -hmm. and, if we're educators, you know, we're educating the future and we're educating these future leaders, people who are going to, you know, step up and really take the reins in the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And we need to make sure that, you know, they're aware that these issues still exist, that there unfortunately is still racism in this country. And, you know, it's going to be up to us and up to them and up to other future generations to you know find the best ways to address that and find ways that we can really help you know this country heal and move forward in a, in a positive way where um you know all people really are being treated equally agreed so, so we want to welcome to the pod tyler ehrlich tyler is from paramus new jersey and he did his undergrad at cornell university in ithaca uh he also got his master's at the best school in the land the university of georgia where he was involved in a member of the Redcoat Marching Band, also the greatest marching band that has uh, ever been created. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background in music, kind of what inspires you about music, and um, what would you say, you, kind of like when would you say you really like, found your love for music? Yeah, sure. Well, well, thanks to both of you for having me on. I'm, I'm definitely excited to have this conversation this morning. Um, so in, in high school, I was very much the stereotypical band kid. Um, I, I was involved in all the different activities and I was involved in the orchestra and I also sang in the chorus and did musical theater and, and that whole thing. But I, I definitely found that my all of the fun components of, of what I remember from high school and, and even from middle school was was being involved in music. Um, when I initially started to think about what I was quote unquote, going to do when I grew up, I initially was going to pursue computer science. And that's, that's actually how I ended up at Cornell in the first place was because I really wanted to find a great place where I could pursue computer science and um, still play my clarinet for fun and get involved in, in the music scene a little bit. But really what I wanted to do was, was uh, program because I thought that the key to happiness in life was all about um, making a lot of money. But when I, when I got there quickly, I, I learned that it was just consistently for all my computer science classes, I was always sitting in front of a computer. I was always um, attending these really large lecture halls. And although I, I found some of the content engaging, um, it was really just like too much computer time for me. And I'm, I, I am someone who considers myself to be a huge extrovert and I love talking with people. 
and I love meeting folks. And, and that really got pretty draining quickly. So I, I sort of did as much of that as I possibly could. But at that same time, um, I also started taking these music classes because that was something, of course, that I had a really love, love a, a big love and passion for when I was going through high school. Um, and I met a really influential um, professor whose name was Cynthia Johnston Turner at the time. And she directed the Wynn Ensemble. And um, that was sort of the main ensemble that I was involved with at the university. Um, and very quickly, I really had, a, an, I had an interest developed in conducting. And that's something that she really helped me with. She, I took her conducting class. She, she took me on as a private student. And um, she was really influential because she was so positive and warm and bubbly and engaging and sweet and caring. And she was a firm teacher, but she was a really great professor. And this was something that I never really got to establish with any of the computer science folks. But what I quickly learned was that this is something that I really need to make myself be a, a happy, well-rounded student and, and eventually, you know, teacher myself is this, is this level of engagement that I just wasn't finding from these computer science courses. Um, so fast forward a few years and I'm graduating Cornell and I'm interested in pursuing music to the next, the next level and getting a graduate degree. And she actually sends me, or actually she picks up the phone and calls me and I was getting on, the, on a flight to um, have an interview and an audition at the University of Michigan. And she called me and she said, do you wanna do your master's degree at the University of Georgia? And I was, you know, just kind of born and raised in Northern New Jersey. And I, I mean, literally, and I tell this story to my students every year because I tell them, if you had a map of the United States and you could throw a dart at it, that would be the chances of me living in Georgia. I mean, it was something I never really considered. I was born and raised in the Northeast and I never thought I would live in the South. I never thought I would live in Atlanta or in Georgia um, because it just kind of wasn't really on my radar. And I wasn't really looking at any schools in the South initially. So she got the University of Georgia director of band's job, and she asked me if I wanted to continue studying with her. And as sort of the weeks gone on and I was getting closer and closer to making a decision, it, it really seemed like going to UGA was an obvious choice. And just exploring Athens from a distance and through YouTube and through Google Maps, it seemed like a really cool place. Talking with all the graduate students in the School of Music, they all seemed to really enjoy it. Of course, Zach, you mentioned the Redcoats before. That was something that was intriguing to me. There was um, a great financial aid package with an assistantship. Um, it just seemed like a really exciting place to be. So I packed up everything and I moved to moved to Athens and I stayed there for two years in my master's degree. And um, ever since then, I, I finished that degree. That's also where I became a certified teacher. And of course, as you know, the last three years I've been teaching at Centennial High School in Roswell. And this upcoming fall, I'm going to be teaching at Decatur High School in Decatur. So that's a little bit of my backstory, but... Um, I'm excited for the future and um, kids are kids and music is music. So no matter what school you're at and uh, it's going to, it's going to, our best days are ahead as we like to say in our school. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a great story. And uh, so interesting how you changed um, your, like your whole journey and the pathway of your career. Uh, I guess I'm still curious. I, I'm not quite sure why you chose. Could you tell us a little bit more of why you chose to go into music education versus like music performance um, when you went into your master's degree? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, technically, my master's degree is in music performance. So I have a, a performance degree in conducting. So I was oh, taking okay. like conducting classes and movement classes and Laban technique and all of this sort of body awareness curriculum that you get with that degree. But um, I really was interested in pursuing music education at the secondary level because it was something that I always had a curiosity about. And Cornell, it did not have any sort of music education or education school at all. They had one class that was called the Art of Teaching. 
And that was it for their whole education curriculum. <laughs> so I took that art of teaching class, which involved going out to a, to a high school. Um, so I did that every, I think it was like once a week for a semester. And it was basically just like a practicum, like very light student teaching experience. And um, I worked mm-hmm. with a great teacher there. She was a band director at a local school about 20 minutes away from Ithaca. Um, and she taught concert band, jazz band, AP music theory, sort of typical things. And I was, I enjoyed it. I was really fascinated by it. It seemed like there was really strong engagement between her and her students. And um, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue a master's degree in conducting because I was definitely more fascinated with that side. And I think that in many ways, education and performance and conducting are all related. Um, but a lot of music education degrees are really theory-based. And I mean, just like any sort of education master's or graduate degree. It's a lot of sitting and learning about educational theories and reading papers. And while I think that stuff is really influential, I was really more focused on the practical side of conducting and standing in front of ensembles and getting rehearsal experience. Awesome. Thanks. Cool. That's uh, like, you know, like Rachel said, you've got a story that uh, like I had no idea about. And you and I taught together for like the last few years. Um, But it's really cool kind of how everything evolved from you, you know, starting in Jersey, going up to Ithaca, which, you know, Jersey and New York seems like such an easy transition. Um, but you'd be surprised, like coming down to Atlanta, like both my parents are both from New York. So, you know, it's a coming down South from New York is like a pretty easy transition. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Northerners down here. Um, I get mistaken for being a Northerner actually relatively frequently, or at least I used to. Um, but okay. So like, let's dive into like you actually like teaching, right? Um, what would you say is like, different about teaching subjects like bands or music theory or music tech compared to some, I guess you would say like quote unquote core classes, like just the standard math, science, things like that. And then do you think that allows for a kind of more freedom in your lesson plans? That might be a stupid question, but I kind of want you to like elaborate on that. Sure. Um, I think the answer is absolutely yes to your second question. And I think that, um, this is a tricky one to describe because there are many times where I feel like I look to my core colleagues with a small degree of envy because I feel like there's sort of an expectation and a standard and a pacing guide. And just, just for example, these last, um, this last week, Fulton County partnered with um, a local music education consultant and they did a set of two day trainings. And many times I asked different teachers that were giving different talks about um, curriculum and instruction and everything And, you know, do you have a pacing guide for what you're talking about? Do you have any notes versus just sort of like a few Google slides assembled? And all of them really say no, because so much of music education is learned on the fly and is learned through having conversations and picking up the phone and calling people and figuring out how do you teach intonation? How do you teach technique? How do you teach all of these things? It's not really, unfortunately, like we have a really set scripted curriculum where we know these are the accessible skills and the standards that quote unquote need to be mastered by this time in the year. And, you know, I basically have to teach to them. And I think it, it, in many ways it's, it's both freeing and it creates a whole lot of fear because there's no real set standard knowing, okay, well the top ensemble at a high school should play at this level or the middle group needs to play at this level. And when I say quote unquote, this level, I'm talking about what level of difficulty. So there's sort of a standard accepted range Um, range that we use in music where one or grade one is the easiest piece that you would play. That's something that typically a beginner would play at the end of his or her first year. And then the top is a grade six piece, which is what most college ensembles would pay would play. So there's just a lot of questions about how do how do I teach what I need to teach? What do I need to teach? What's the best way to teach it? How do I assess it? 
And how do I, and, and all of these things are sort of the things that are consistently rolling around in the back of my mind. So, so just to kind of put a cap on that, I think to teachers that are maybe not always, I don't want to say not always interested in doing their best, but I think folks that can more roll with the punches, maybe more plan B or type B people, I should say, enjoy it. But as someone who's very much a, a big extrovert and a type A person with, you know, organized and notes and lessons plans, it's really challenging because there's not a wealth of resources that you can really pull out from where people have a lot of actual scripted lessons and example videos and curriculum and assessment. You really have to kind of build it on your own. So I'd say the freedom is both something that can be enjoyed, but it's also something that can create some fear and concern too. I can imagine uh, the creativity that that allows you as a, as a teacher is probably, like you said, for some really exciting and uh, drives some of that um, like passion as a teacher, but then for others, those type A people, it's probably quite frightening. Um, similar to the situation that we've just uh, experienced and some of us are still experiencing um, in regards to the teaching through distance learning or remote learning um, and COVID. Can you tell us a little bit of how that has impacted your teaching and in what ways were you able to continue your lessons? Sure, um, absolutely. So I, I think that um, there's a few things at play here and I, that I, I wanna share. The first is that with everything that's been going on right now, and we were sort of talking about this before we started recording, but, but all of the, the riots and, and um, protests and, and all the different um, folks that are frustrated and up in arms and, and everything that's going on in the world and, and the gross injustice. Um, I think to me, I have a responsibility to teach more about community, acceptance, love, support, appreciation for your neighbor, um, than just teach music. And this is something that I share often. I, I had two student teachers this past year and it's sort of a, a trick question, but I asked them, do you teach music or do you teach kids? And, you know, obviously they're going to say, well, oh, well, I teach music, right? Because, and I, I think that's why a lot of us pursue this degree in the first place. And just to give you an example, I mean, as a, as a college kid that was con considering pursuing music and music education, which I ultimately ended up doing, I didn't do it because I wanted to, have great experiences with teenagers that were also my my age i did it because i really engaged with them with the content i really enjoyed practicing my instrument i really enjoyed making music at a high level but i think as someone who's still very much a young teacher just starting my fourth year i'm realizing more and more the longer i do this that really we're not just teaching music we're teaching kids and we're teaching values of acceptance and community and passion and all of these different skills so in some ways, to go back to the first question about what does your curriculum look like, I'm actually spending a lot of time these days thinking about what do I need to do to reshape my curriculum? What do I need to do to incorporate more values of acceptance and love and community and all of those things? And since I have that structure where I don't necessarily have to do teach this specific skill on this day of this semester, I can spend 25 minutes having a discussion about something like that, or I could spend five minutes going over something. And um, that's, gonna, that's kind of a charge I've given myself is to, is to really do some soul searching and figuring out how do I approach these topics in a way that is open to all of the students where they can share what they think, but really stress that why we do um, band and why we do music as, as kids really is for the community. And when I consistently ask my students, why, do you, why, do you, why, why are you in band? What's your favorite thing about band? I'd say about 95% of the answers that they say is about the community and about their peers. So 
I feel like I have quite a bit of soul searching and curriculum planning and guidance to do for myself just to figure out how I incorporate more of that social emotional learning because I think it's so relevant right now with with between a global pandemic and, you know, gross amounts of injustice that's going on and being demonstrated throughout the country. I think that's going to be a big change for me. Um, that being said, I feel like I forgot your original question. So do you want to give it to me one more time, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's incredible. Um, I think you answered it. It's, uh, the question was, how do you, how um, did COVID impact your teaching and in what ways are you continuing your lessons? And it just really makes me think about as a former uh, marching band member, clarinetist, I, uh, there were so many of us who were in marching band and it was really hard to be in sports and in marching band at the same time because many, many, much of the time the seasons overlapped, right? So like marching band season, there were also sports at that time. So if you were involved in, or like an athlete in the sports that were happening at that same time, you couldn't do it. Um, and so in the sense that you're talking about, there's this, sense, there's this community um, within the music uh, world where like marching band, for example, is almost, it is a sport per se. Like people join these communities um, for that social emotional connection and that um, bond between one another and uh, those friendships and, and sense of relationship between um, people. And so you definitely touched on that. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know. It's incredible to think through how are we tying in social emotional learning through music education as well. So you nailed it. That was, that was great. Exactly. Yeah, I, I just want to jump kind of like add on to that as well. You know, really what you were saying was it, it definitely like hit me for sure. Um, you know, like we mentioned earlier, you know, you and I have been at the same school for the last few years and like I've watched you, you know, really grow this amazing band program. Uh, and now you're going to have this incredible opportunity to really take over another one and really lead it and put it in the direction I think you really want to, which is I can only imagine how great um, Decatur High's band program is going to be in the next several years. Um, but to kind of that community thing, you know, as, as like, you know, a, a coach and like an assistant athletic director, like I see a lot more of like the athletic side of it, but you know, I'm at every home football game and I get to see all of my like current and former students who are all in the band and they're all like so happy and positive. And like when they're all together, you can see that amazing like, community feel like with one another. Um, and then, you know, they have, there's this almost like, you know, this going into battle before every football game, um, not just, <laughs> you know, but I mean, like there is, you know, like the football team, everybody's like so jacked mm -hmm. up, like they've got to get all together. This whole unit has to get together, but like the band has to do something incredibly similar. It's, you know, they've mm -hmm. got to all be on the same page when they're in the stands playing songs and playing music throughout, but then they have this huge intensive performance that is maybe five or 10 minutes, which you don't think is, you know, very long, but requires so much effort, so much work, so much collaboration that all occurs together. And you can see how everybody like com comes together to really put it together. It's, it's really cool. You, you definitely kind of hit on something that, uh, that I guess I really hadn't thought about as much, uh, but I think it's awesome. Um, you're, you're definitely yes. doing some great things. Um, so what, um, I guess the next question I have for you uh, is what uh, pleasant surprises have you found through this process during this COVID shutdown? Are there any silver linings to this difficult time uh, that you have found while having to teach remotely besides the SEL piece that you shared? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of this has also made me revisit 
why I teach, what I teach, and when I do it in the year. Like, for example, um, for the, the Georgia folks that are listening, um, we have an assessment that takes place typically the second or third week of March called LGPE or Large Group Performance Evaluation. And this, this is pretty common across the country where for in Florida, they call it Music Performance Assessment. In Texas, they call it UIL, or they might call it Festival or Contest. But essentially, your concert bands go and get a rating. And depending on the school you're at and the community you're at and the state you're at, there's different amounts of weight that's put on and importance that's put on with that. Um, but there's definitely a sanctity around it in Georgia, and there's really an expectation that you get the highest possible rating, which is a, which is a level one rating. So um, to that end, I've found over the past few years, I've really spent the beginning of January, you know, let's say the first day of school might be January 5th or 6th, and the assessment's on March 12th. Well, that means I'm spending about 10 weeks working on these same three pieces of music, which could be 12 minutes of music. And while I think that that's a worthy endeavor in and of itself, what I found myself is because actually we, we closed school the day before we were actually going to go to our assessment. So we actually never got that final result or score or payoff or whatever. But at this point, it doesn't even really make a difference to me. Um, but what I found myself thinking for those first few weeks was that, wow, I really spent 10, 10 weeks of school working on these 12 minutes of music. And how many times have those students played those same measures over and over and over again, just to try to get it as perfect as possible. And I'm not saying that that is not a worthy endeavor in and of itself, because I think that there's something to be said. I mean, not only about the music side, about really getting an extremely polished performance and pushing the students past where they've ever been before in terms of musicianship and technical ability and everything. But it also makes me think, well, what am I neglecting when I'm spending that time? Because obviously, I have to spend this time at the expense of teaching either other skills or teaching other um, other repertoire, other pieces of music, doing chamber music, smaller groups, um, having smaller groups play versus just the full band. So there's a lot of questions that I've sort of explored in, in myself in terms of how balanced is my curriculum and spending 10 weeks teaching coronavirus, excuse me, taking 10 weeks to teach this repertoire and then everything's shut down for coronavirus while I never really taught any of these other skills during that time. So I guess for myself, it's just really opened up the door to ask myself, should I spend this much time on this music or should I really mm -hmm. try and flesh out something that's more balanced this way I'm never neglecting other parts of the program just to get a rating at a festival by a judge who heard hears our band one time and how important really is that to mm -hmm. me? Wow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you nailed it all, man. I mean, you're for someone who's only been teaching for, you know, like you said, like three or four years, I mean, your, your outlook and your perspective on education is, is really refreshing. You know, you, you seem to already have this, this understanding of how things should be for someone who's been teaching like 10, 15, like 20 years. It's, it's really awesome. And, you know, I appreciate, I know Rachel does as well. You can see her getting so excited with all this band stuff. She's like reliving her glory days um but we we really appreciate you coming on and like sharing your thoughts and you know your experiences your story with us and i know on a personal note uh, i am sad to see you leave i am sad we will no longer be working together um this next year but i am incredibly excited for your new journey um this is something that is much deserved i know decatur is getting an amazing uh band director and music teacher so I'm excited to see kind of what you're going to be able to do with that group going forward. And uh, you let me know if there's an AD job that opens up over at Decatur. I wouldn't mind a short commute. And uh, everybody says Decatur's a great school these days. So you let me know. Thank you both for having me. It's been a pleasure. And, and let me know if there's anything I can do for either of you going forward.
All right, so welcome Will. He is a teacher in LA. Will is a multi-instrumentalist with 12 years of experience teaching children of all ages throughout LA. He began his career with uh, Burbank Unified School District, serving as music coach, and eventually moving up to be the assistant music director at Luther Burbank Middle School, Burbank High School, and John Burroughs High School. In addition to his work with BUSD, Will is passionate about giving back to his community. He founded and directed the Burbank Young Musicians, a free youth orchestra outreach program, which is pretty awesome. And he's also actively performing um, as a musician himself. He performs regularly with the Valley Symphony in both uh, flute and violin. And he recently was invited to be a guest conductor. In his free time, Will likes to write his own music he is currently writing an album inspired by his best friends and life experiences growing up in uh, San Fernando Valley. Uh, Will, thanks so much for being with, here with us today. Uh, can you tell us a little more about what got you into teaching music and what a day in the life of teaching looks like now? Absolutely. So um, I guess I have to say that when it comes to starting with my music education, it really just was more of a situation of I was a latchkey kid. Like a lot of the times, my mom had to work to take care of the family, so it really was just me and my brothers kind of being independent and having to take care of ourselves. And so, you know, with having an older brother being in charge of you, you don't necessarily always get, you know, every single support or thing that you need. And so I kind of felt like I was lacking some kind of a, adult leadership in my life for a little bit. And so I somehow managed to join band. Like, and I did this without my mom's permission because clearly, like, I didn't even see her that often, so I was like, hey mom, I have a flu, can you give me a $50 check? <laughs> she was just like, okay, like, I, I guess, but what, what's a flu, right? Yeah. And so, it just kind of started there, that I, I excelled at something for the first time ever in my life when I joined band in eighth grade, and by the time I moved on into high school, I just felt like there was something that I could be good at, something I wanted to challenge myself to do, and I practiced like crazy and became a good musician, like, and I didn't know I was a good musician until my band director kept presenting me with more opportunities of leadership and performing and solos. And so I just feel like my high school band director personally was the guy who saved my life. Like my older brothers had been arrested, had been to jail, had been in gangs, had done all sorts of things. And I just kind of felt like I didn't want that to be who I was specifically. So I needed to find something to save me. And music that's what it was it was my band director people relying on me people thinking of you know i had was responsible for not only myself but everybody around me and that was just something that really resounded with me especially in high school like i felt like i met my friends i met people that were not necessarily because band is such a crazy world of different people from all over the place that i made all sorts of friends that were nothing like me and it was just a really cool opportunity to be able to actually like go out of, you know, what I experienced as like the only kids I could hang around with. That's an incredible story. Um, thanks for being vulnerable and sharing those, uh, that experience with us and your, your passion for what you got you, what got you into music. Um, going from that, then what you then moved into music or into teaching. So how, how did you go? Like, what, at what point did you know um, in high school or in middle school that you wanted to do, um, like, have a career in this field? So it's funny because I recently had a conversation with my mom mm -hmm. where I had just asked her, I was like, hey, mom, 
were you worried about who I was going to be and what I was going to do as well? <laughs> and, like, I just feel like that's not something you normally ask your parents, but yeah. I'm, like, in my 30s, so I was like, let me have this real conversation with yeah. this adult person who is, happens to be my parent. And so she had remembered, and this is kind of a funny story, I played football first. Okay. Because my older brother played football. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, I remember seeing you come home from football practice, tired, exhausted, you hated it, you were miserable. I can't believe that you did it for that long. And she just said she saw a shift in who I became from mm. being in the football hell week to being in the band program. And so it just kind of turned into one of those things where, again, like I made a decision where music was more important. Yeah. And unfortunately, because um, my family was pretty, we had low income growing up. And mm-hmm. so that's why my mom had to work all the time. And so when it came to band expenses, like I just kind of had this mentality in my mind, like, I don't want to worry my parent about money we can't afford anyway. So I went to the local middle school as a sophomore in high school. Like, I made these flyers. Like, I cut and paste things and picked the colored paper and, like, made copies and literally stapled my flyers at the middle school. And was like, hey, anybody, I'll teach you for $10 an hour. Oh. And so literally at 15 years old, I got my first two students. And wow. I have to say, whoever my first student out there was, like, I don't necessarily remember who you are, but I'm sorry because you dealt with <laughs> at the very beginning. So, uh, but you know over the years as I gained more private students I really just started to learn a little bit more about myself as a musician I started to learn about what music education was and after that I just happened to be teaching a girl who was at the local high school after I graduated after I graduated high school and so she said you know what we're looking for a flute coach and so because of that I introduced myself to that band director and then got hired on board and from there with the Burbank district I moved up from being a flute coach to being a, um, a marching director, to being an assistant music director, to at one point taking over the program um, when one of the band directors wasn't able to continue the school year. So, and that was over a process of eight years, specifically with that district, of me just working my way up and kind of training on the fly, like training with actual kids, with students, with fellow mentor teachers. And so it very recently, like in the last three years, I finally landed my own position as a full director at a school, as opposed to like Burbank and Musicians, which is something I did as a director out of my own, like I wanted to put together a program, outreach program in my city. And so I did that. But unfortunately, that sort of thing does not pay the bills. And so with all that experience, I, I found a teaching job. Thankfully, you know, we're always really graceful and grateful to have a teaching job. Um, but it really was because of all these experiences that got me to the place where I am. That, that's awesome. It's, it's an awesome story. Like I, I keep the more and more you're telling me about it, the more and more I keep just getting like drawn in to like everything. So it really sounds like, like you said, like music really saved your life. It puts you on a path forward, which is so wonderful. So how do you take your experiences and the fact that music was so important to you and set you on this trajectory? How do you take that? and relay that to your students? What, what do you do to try to get them to have that same passion and have that same you know, drive um, to really show them, okay, music can be something huge going forward? So I got my huge step, I would say, at first, because I was teaching high school with just you know trying to figure out what teenagers were like, because I wasn't a teenager that far after I started working with them. And it kind of just became one of those things where in my mind, because I had a difficult route when it came to being able to go to school, being able to go to college, being able to afford tuition, being able to afford an instrument. So at that point, when I was teaching high school, my one drive was 
any kid who wants to go to college, I don't care where they come from, what their background is. If you want to go to college and you want to be a musician, I'm going to help you. And that was just my biggest drive because I just felt so passionate that college isn't easy for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that those kids were heard, that they had somebody to believe in them. That was wonderful. I, I, I think that's great. So, all right. So, okay. So tell me about a couple of the things that you do like in the classroom. What is, cause you teach at like a day school now, right? So you've got, you've yes. got younger kids. Um, so tell me about some of the stuff that, that you get to do uh, in the classroom. I mean, y- your passion for music is, you know, is, is unmatched clearly. What is, how do you get to like express your passion and get your kids excited about it kind of on like a day-to-day basis? So nowadays, I actually, I teach at multiple schools because, like, my current day school only has, like, about a 50% capacity for me to be able to teach because we're just a small school. Mm -hmm. So a lot of music teachers are like me where in order to fill up their full-time hours, they have to go to multiple sites. So that is kind of, like, what I'm, where I'm at, too. So, like, on a typical Wednesday, I would be at three different schools, one in the morning, one right after snack break, and one right after school. And so... That was just like, that's a normal Wednesday. But if I'm teaching at my day school, I always like to put a checklist because I'm a big uh, believer in responsive classroom and understanding and helping kids to be able to empower themselves. So my checklist is always number one, being able to put up the list of expectations. Like, this is what we're doing today. This is what we're getting through. I have my music warm-ups. We all, my kids know how to sing our music warm-ups. Then I usually do some kind of lesson based off of song. I teach games. I show a lot of music videos and I show a lot of, I share a lot of music that I don't think that they would hear on their own. So I do a lot of what I call listening labs. Like today, specifically, um, I had a listening lab today with my students because as you can imagine what's going on with all the racial issues we have in Los Angeles, um, we, I know that as a teacher, it's our responsibility to do our parts in the classroom, right? Like me personally, I'm a person of color. I'm terrified of police, like I have to say that. So me, I don't feel comfortable going to a protest. I wish I had that bravery, but I don't. But as a teacher at a school where people are a different color than me and have a little bit more affluence, I can empower my students to be those people for me one day. And so today's lesson I used for one of my older classes, um, The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Like it's a song from the 90s, hip hop, that I just remember it resounded with me as a kid. And I shared the video and the lyrics with the kids just trying to show them, like, all the different parallels of this was a song that came out 30 years ago. And we're talking about people losing their brothers, their uncles, their cousins, and praying every day for peace, for safety. And even in my, gra- in my younger class, or not super younger, but my grade four class, I also played a song that was about standing up for people that you believe in. It's called Here's Where I Stand. And just being able to love the people and support them And these beautiful conversations came out today about like, not necessarily about all the tension, but just the fact that you can hear the kids coming up with these connections of, if I love somebody, I'm gonna stand up for them. Or even just, this is wrong. Like things like this are wrong. And I think that those are just important conversations to facilitate because if we don't do it at an elementary level, then how would you ever expect the middle school student to be able to come up with a cognizant, um, you know, idea or be able to speak what they're, what they're thinking about right in a way that is um just thoughtful well i'm i'm speechless uh i don't think any of us as we were we were talking about this podcast uh a few weeks back and planning for this even thought that we'd be sitting in the situation we're in now um given what's going on in in our communities and across the nation um 
and the riots that are taking place. However, you really truly are using music in a way to reach students and, and have conversations and um, support their SEL, their social emotional learning, and also have um, conversations with them where they feel comfortable talking about how they can support one another. Um, it, it's incredible to hear what you're doing remotely. Um, are there other, like what, can you tell us a little bit about what else you've learned during this process going from like the regular um, classroom setting uh, to this remote learning piece outside of the, um, like the, the riots and the, the racial situations well, sure going on? That you all, I mean, had to go through it the same that mm -hmm. I did where all of a sudden it was one day like, oh, your school's closing tomorrow. Correct. Oh, next Monday we're starting. <laughs> Correct. And that was just something that like a lot of us teachers kind of went through where it was like, yeah. wait, do you mean I have one day to go pick up all the stuff in my classroom that I think I need for the rest yeah. of the year? Right? <laughs> and um, so it was really tricky. And I have to say that at first I struggled because mm -hmm. I personally am not a content creator. Like, I feel like there's a lot of educators out there who have the strengths of being able to, like, I'm going to make this video. I'm going to make these instructions. I'm going to make this activity, like, that kind of person to post so that a kid can independently go watch it. And for me, I thrive so much on the energy of my students and being able to see faces and to be able to gauge what the actual reception is mm -hmm. that I just struggled so much in this first week. I think in the first weekend before the schools closed, I stayed in bed for, like, a whole day because I was so worried about, like, what can I really do mm -hmm. and how can I do this? And then lucky for me, within a week, our school decided to change the live room and I immediately took off from there. Like, awesome. I feel like I'm very comfortable with live lessons because I sh I'm a man of order. I'm a man of structure. I'm a man of like repeating things. And so I brought my exact classroom to my live Zooms. I made my checklist. I made my songs. I brought my instruments. Like I literally made sure that my kids for my classes felt that they had the exact same continuity at home, like when we were learning at home and as if I was in my classroom, because that's where I shine and that's where I feel like I do well. I just couldn't mm -hmm. be a content creator. It, it, it makes so much sense. And like anybody who's listened to the pod knows that like I wasn't fortunate enough to like have a similar experience to you during, you know, the, the COVID break and we're out of school now. So maybe that'll have to wait until August. But I, I love how you brought you know, your classroom to where you live and so your kids can see it. You know, one thing we know about students and you're just young people in general is, you know, structure is really important. So making sure that kids have that structure going forward is, you know, is, is something that's, you know, they thrive on, not just like structure throughout the day that makes them, you know, feel comfortable because they know what's coming next, but it also makes them feel safe, right? It also makes them feel safe. Absolutely. So, it, you know, you said you've used music a little bit, and, you know, we don't want to like, you know, continue to, to harp on this, but I think it's really important, uh, given that everything that's kind of continued going on throughout the weekend, and, you know, we're recording this now Monday night. Um, is there anything that you found that's, you know, been helpful with your kids that maybe like some of the rest of us could take to, to our kids discussing, you know, some of the kind of like the racial tensions that have happened is there something that you found that's been beneficial? Well, I think that it's just really important to facilitate conversations earlier because I don't know if we always necessarily believe that our kids can handle the amount of information that comes at them. But the world is a very different place than it ever has been. It's so much more information is out there. And I feel like we are almost doing a disservice by 
allowing these like what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is we teach Martin Luther King Day every year, right? Like I know every school does. So we teach that almost as if it's a piece of history. But what is happening today? Like, I feel like we almost need to make sure that we're teaching these lessons as if they're still happening because they are. And I think that that's extremely important to just realize that the parallels are there and that it is our service as teachers in the classroom to be able to facilitate conversations that make kids feel safe, that make them feel heard, and to just make them understand. And it's not necessarily like I'm not the kind of person to like tell my kids this is what they need to feel. I'm the kind of person that tries to lead conversations. And unfortunately, they don't always go that way because of the lack of facilitated conversations at a younger age. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, hold having a safe space is key. Allowing our students to have a place where they can formulate their own opinion. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Well, um, we truly, truly, truly appreciate your time and sharing your uh, experience during this COVID time of teaching music. And um, unfortunately, the, the rest of what's going on as well. And some of the pieces that you've been able to carry into your virtual classroom to help support students during this challenging time um, and sharing those with our listeners. We hope that uh, people will be able to take some strategies with them and uh, start to think about their practices in their classrooms and what, what would work for them and the students in front of them because there's different things for every kid. Um, so thank you so much again for sharing those uh, pieces with us. We appreciate you and your time uh, as we know that you taught today. Uh, so it's been a long day for you. Um, and yeah, thanks again. So keep up the well, you guys are amazing awesome. work. Thank you two. You two keep up the work too. I really love this idea. Thanks, Will. And that's our show. We want to thank our guests, Tyler and Will. Thank you so much for listening to Teaching These Days. As always, if you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and review us. Most importantly, tell your friends. We're really trying to build something here and we need your help. We will see you next time. And thanks again for listening.